Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And listeners, do not run away. We are, to- <laughs> we are talking about math in this episode, but we are not going to talk about... Uh, you know, a whole bunch of rat, we're not gonna rattle off a bunch of equations and talk about, um, you know, the, the inner workings of algebra or geometry or, cal- or calculus. Because if you're like me, you probably never really got into mathematics in school. And you're not particularly good at it. And, uh, anytime a math question comes up, you try and, uh, force it on other people. And you absolutely cannot go to a bowling alley that does not have automated score- scorekeeping. Right, right. Or you always say something like, I'm an English major. Yeah. To the response of what's seven times three or something ridiculous like that. But I will say, yes, yeah, stick around. Absolutely. Because nobody has more anxiety about math than I do. And nobody is less of a mathlete than I am. And yet I find this question that we're going to pose to you and to ourselves absolutely fascinating. Yeah. We're getting into uh, the, the philosophical uh area of mathematics uh, to a certain degree and just talking about what it is and uh and indeed the question is mathematics a human creation a human invention or is it a human discovery that's so, right so think think about that mathematics this thing that powers everything pretty much everything that we do uh the, the, from the device that you're listening to this podcast on right now to the um the, the, the science that has enabled uh, civilization to reach the point that it has reached. But what is math, right? Yeah, what is math? We should back up. We're going to back up. We're going to we're going to start. You know, we're we're not going to really go back into the history books and talk about like who invented this and that because a lot of mathematics is pretty ancient to the point where we can't really place uh, you know uh, uh, attribute it to a, one particular individual or another. But we can back up to birth to you when you were a baby. Yeah. And you were just, you know, spit out on the world, uh, gleaming with, with goo. Um, nice. Even then, your brain had some mathematics. You were a mathlete and you didn't even know it. Yeah. A minor mathlete, at least. Yeah. yeah. Because you were, you were born with something that we call number sense. All right. Um, and a number, just to, to break it down, a number is a word and a symbol representing a count. Okay. Uh, like that's the basics of it. You may call it two, you may attribute it with the numeral two, or you may have some other system of, of referring to it. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, in China, they have, they have small, they have shorter words for their numbers. Right. Which is one of the reasons they're supposedly better at, uh, at mathematics because there's less just, you know, it's kind of like cutting a penny off of every transaction. It adds up. Um, and right. it allows everything to, to move. You don't have faster. to have a new word for 200. Right. Um, you just well anyway we won't get into that math system but yeah, it's pretty but, cool but uh but this is necessary because it's I mean imagine yourself in the wild and you encounter a dog like a wild dog that's barking at you and then and then you were to encounter two wild dogs barking at you being able to differentiate between the two is essential it's it's all about navigating a world full of multiple objects and moving objects mm-hmm. you know uh, there are a lot of like if you're just walking around the forest there are a lot of trees there are um, wild dogs moving around. There are maybe other humans. I mean, just think uh, all the things in your life that are in flux, and you have to be able to navigate that world, and that is what mathematics helps us do. Well, and this is your brain in action, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when you enter a room, 99% of what you are seeing is not coming in through your eyes. It's actually what your brain is inferring. Mm-hmm. And so what we're pointing to here is our brain structures and this idea that we might be hardwired to uh, to 
spatially differentiate as much as possible. That's what you're talking about, right? right. When you come into a room, you're looking at the height, whether or not you know it, you're looking at the height of the walls, you're, you're, uh, sort of creating this pattern in your brain of pattern recognition. Right. And other animals do this too, but, uh, but those other animals, like the gooey infant that uh, you once were, mm-hmm. uh, they they have... wipe that off actually after a while. <laughs> oh, do they? Yeah, I, all the infants I encounter are gooey. Some of the adults are gooey. Oh, well. um, but uh, uh, such a child uh, will have no grasp of the human number system. Mm-hmm. They are not going to know what two is, or what three is, or what three times eight is. Those are things that are going to come with in time uh, via education. But they still have that number sense. Then they can identify changes in quantity. And this basically equates to something called logarithmic counting. Yes. And uh, neuroimaging researchers have actually studied the brains of infants. And, uh, I mean, scientists have studied the brains of infants through uh, neuroimaging research. And uh, they've, uh, they've registered these, uh, the, the, the mental activity going on as they uh, identify integral increases in physical quantity. So, like a a baby, for instance, wouldn't be able to tell that much difference between five and six teddy bears, mm-hmm. but five and ten they'll definitely see because there there's a a, a definite um, logarithmic increase in quantity. Yeah, and I thought this was really fascinating. Um, uh, t- to that point, there's an article from Futurity dot uh, org, and it's called "Babies Can Count Before They Can Communicate." And uh, what they say is our findings indicate that humans use information about quantity to organize their experience of the world from the first few months of life. Quantity appears to be a powerful tool for making predictions about how objects should behave. And what I think is really important about that is predictions, because that is what math is about at the end of the day. Right. Mm-hmm. If I'm sitting there adding one and one, uh, then then I'm trying to predict what the following number is going to be. And that's at the most basic level. I mean, we know this is applied throughout physics throughout every single field that you can think of in order for us to try to make sense and categorize our lives and predict future outcomes. Even chaos theory is an attempt to predict the unpredictable. Right. Now, here's the thing, though, and this is where math begins, because we're not even really dealing with math yet. We're dealing with numbers. We're dealing with with number sense. But um, as we're we're navigating this environment around us, um, the the higher the higher the math gets, the more, the larger the numbers become, mm-hmm. the harder it is for us to, 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 to process it. Like even, uh, like humans are systematically slower to compute four plus five, uh, than they are, uh, to compute two plus three. Right. Like when I was going over that in my notes, I could actually notice it since I'm not good at math. Uh, I mean, I could actually feel the difference in, com- in computing four plus five. <laughs> you and could two feel plus the three. brain power. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this actually, this is something that everyone experiences. Everybody, because we are not evolved to do arithmetic, uh, uh, high arithmetic, certainly not no, geometry or anything. But I do think this is, uh, I actually started looking through some information about autism, mm-hmm. um, in particular savants. Um, and uh, 10% of the autistic population is a savant, by the way, and an estimated 1% of non-autistic population um, is a savant. But when you think about that, uh, and the reason I bring it up is because it's clear in those instances that the brain is working at a much higher cognitive function level than than what we would normally be used to, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why you've got someone like Daniel Tamet. He's an autistic savant. Um, and from the Guardian article, Genius Explains, Tamet, they say that Tamet broke the European record for recalling pi, the mathematical constant, to the furthest decimal point to 22,514 decimal places. Wow. I mean, he, yes, 
I mean, he, you know what I'm saying? And we, most of us can just say 3.14 and then yeah, I can trail take it. off. I can take right? it to two decimal points. Right, yeah. right. Um, so he says that he found it easy because he didn't even have to think. To him, pi is an abstract set of digits. It's a visual story. Um, it's almost like a film projected in front of his eyes. So in that case, we know that he has a brain that is hardwired for uh, this kind of thinking um, in this really complex level, right? Right. But even he, even someone is is gifted uh, for numbers, mm-hmm. um, has has to turn to an outside system. They have to augment their their number sense, uh, even if it's a particularly phenomenal one. And that's where mathematics begins to play. To right. To play. Yeah. Well, actually, even before mathematics really becomes into play, we have uh, we as we've discussed in our uh, five fingered uh, evolutionary podcast. Yeah. Uh, we start using our fingers. That's why we are so much of our, our number system is based on, uh, on, on units of, uh, 5, 10, or 20. Right. Because that's what the tools that we had. It's like, you know, you can easily imagine this ancient, uh, you know, prehistoric individual doing math and it's like, well, goodness, I'm having a hard time, uh, processing numbers beyond, uh, like three or four in my head. What can I turn to to help me? Oh, look at these things. Right. And, uh, and, you know, starts using his fingers, starts using his toes. From there, s- starts using other things, rocks, twigs. Uh, and before long, you have a, an emerging mathematical system. Right. And yeah, and that's why we have these like 10 based, 20 based mathematical right. systems. Decimal system or the yeah, other 20 is a, a, a vigesimal system. Yeah, vigesimal and this mm-hmm. 20 base, right? Yeah. Even our, even our numerals, um, like the, uh, the Phoenician symbols that Arabic number, numbers are, te- are are based on, those were in their original archaic forms, which our our current system is derived from. Mm-hmm. If you look back at the 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 ancient versions of it, the number um, you could tell what the number was by the number of angles in the symbol. Oh, right, right. Like, I remember this from your article, how mm-hmm. math works. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of it doesn't stack up because, like, our nine is a lot different from the the ancient Phoenician nine. Yeah, but take the number zero. Mm-hmm. Zero. The the zero has no angles in it. Because it is nothing. The numeral one has one angle in it. Right. Because it is one. Two has two angles in it in the archaic version, uh, et cetera. So, um, that, that's, that's fascinating. But that's another example of, of, you know, the human brain can only do so much and you have to build outward. It's like that, the trailer that one is building onto and, and creating all these additional rooms. Right. Um, we are the trailer and we begin building the system, uh, and out from ourselves to help us to better compute the world around us. Well, and again, it's this idea of symbols and abstraction, which is pretty fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Because math becomes something that's much more than just, you know, trigonometry or even one plus one. It is a system of symbols that we use to, uh, you know, extrapolate our existence in yeah. a sense. Uh, but I do, I did want to talk a little bit about pattern recognition. I know we've already brought it up, but I wanted to say a little bit more about the brain and the fact that we're pretty much pattern recognition machines. Um, so, uh, you know, you all have all these causal connections between A and B. And this is from a Scientific American article called Turn Me On, Dead Man. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that title later okay. if you want. Um, but they say that as when our ancestors, uh, th- so the causal connections between A and B are like when our san- ancestors associated the seasons with the migration of game animals. We are skilled enough at it to have survived and passed on the genes for the capacity of association learning. Right. So again, you what we're doing is attributing some sort of symbol to these associations, these patterns that we see to document our world and try to navigate it in, in a better way. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's why pattern recognition is one of the the pillars of artificial communication. Yeah. I mean, I mean, um, and that's why uh, 
that's and that's why pattern recognition is one of the pillars of um, artificial intelligence, like being able to instill that in a machine, which incidentally is essentially made out of math. Yeah. Uh, Right, and because it's a it's a type of communicating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and AI we know is sort of based on the way that we think, right? right. Um, and even I was thinking, even like Morse code, something like this, or binary code, these are again attempts to communicate ideas, right? Um, and there's this idea that that math is fundamentally universal, right? So what you end up with is basically a tower of mathematics, which uh, we're going to discuss right after this quick break. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. And we're back. A tower of mathematics. Now, hang with me on this particular analogy, um, which I came up with for um, the How Stuff Works article, How Math Works, which is a broad, um, you know, a broad look at what math is for generally, you know, for people who are not super into math. It's, you know, more about the philosophy of it and what it is and the kind of stuff we're discussing here. Um, I was really proud of this analogy until I realized that other people had also developed it uh, <laughs> years before I, I was born. I think it's just your, your uh, intuition, your pattern recognition, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you can think of math as this tower that we've built. St- like imagine a human standing on a plane, all right, a big grassy plane. He can only see so far, he or she. He, I don't know. She. She, whatever. <laughs> whatever the gender, this human can only see so far given their 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 natural-born height and the sight. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're going to see better, they're going to want to climb on top of something, right? Right. Climb a tree or something. There are no trees around. So they need to build something, and they build a tower, all right? So, and in this analogy, the, the natural-born height uh, equates to one's natural-born limited mathematical uh, abilities. And then the tower that we build is the system of mathematics. Each level of the mathematical tower enables humans to see farther, and achieve more. Um, and this, this tower, like just as a structured, you know, physical tower is built of materials and systems. Mm-hmm. You know, you would, you would, you know, have the guys bring out, you know, some stone for it, some wood, uh, et cetera. And then you'd have, you know, you'd probably need plumbers, electricians, and, and other various, uh, uh, uh specialists come, uh, all come out to build the systems that make right. up the tower. Well, our tower of mathematics would be made of, of integers. It would be made of rational numbers, irrational numbers, complex numbers, um, real numbers. And I ex- these are explained in that article that I, I referenced, uh, how math works. You would also have such systems as arithmetic, algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus. Mm-hmm. Uh, in each of these, you can think of as a different level of complexity. Is a, a, a building block? Height. Yeah, building block. Yeah. Each building on the last. Mm-hmm. And the higher the tower gets, the more humans are able to achieve to they, you know, they reach the point where they're able to use mathematics to better navigate the physical world. Mm-hmm. They're able to use it to better navigate and, and understand the world uh, beyond our planet, mm-hmm. uh, to build artificial machines and, uh, and artificial intelligences and create uh, the computer world that we have today. All of these things become possible by building uh, building this tower, uh, working on the backs of, of other geniuses, as, right, as we standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, right. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, even like you're talking about uh, using this system to to get outside of ourselves, right? To right. get outside of our, our particular planet, uh, our universe, um, and we can see that proven out through mathematics throughout history, right? And I was thinking at the very basic level when we began to understand, 
you know, pattern recognition in nature, you know, something like the Fibonacci sequence, which you have an excellent article on as well. Um, and if, if for those who are not familiar with it, Fibonacci sequence is essentially like a number wherein each number is the sum of the previous two. Yeah. And they, in this number sequence is not, it's not like the secret code of everything. Like it doesn't, no. it doesn't correspond with everything, but it corresponds with an alarming number of things from, uh, like, uh, propagation numbers in various, uh, uh, species. You know, the number rabbits. of yeah, rabbits, for right. instance, are the classic example. Like if you can predict how many rabbits will be born. Right. And how a population will grow based mm-hmm. on that. Uh, growth points in trees, petal counts, sunflower seed arrangements. Uh, they're just expressed in, in multiple ways in nature. Mm-hmm. And um, this is called the golden ratio, too, yes. right? This mm-hmm. number. Um, and what I thought is when, of course, when us, um, vain humans, when we apply it to ourselves, we can see it, right? Right. Um, we can see this, um, in, in the number of body parts that we have, the way that our body parts are arranged and spaced, they all follow this golden ratio. Yeah. So there, there's, there's that aspect of math, you know, that it, it, it helps us understand the world. It helps us, um, predict things in, in nature that we haven't actually observed yet or proven yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly when it comes to things like dark matter. Oh, yeah. Well, and dark matter is this problematic thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is interesting about math, its contribution to physics, is that we, again, we, we arrive at this understanding because we have this universal language. And many different uh, epochs of time, people, cultures have all contributed to this. So we have right. this understanding. But then you get to something like dark matter, and it is uh, purely a result of math. And if I'm understanding it correctly, our computational models of the universe weren't really washing. And it was cosmologists who finally figured, you know, via math, that in order for the mathematical models to make sense, there had to be some sort of matter not seen, known, or measured, really, Mm -hmm. to us, that was occupying the space of the universe. And this is dark matter. It's like an accountant looking at the books for a business and saying, hey, we got some money missing here. Somebody's embezzling. Right. It, you know, in, but in this case, the embezzler is the universe itself, <laughs> right. uh, which apparently has the right yeah. to embezzle. And then it's just figuring out, well, what does that, uh, what, where does this money go? What, what is it paying for? Well, and I love this idea of dark matter, um, as an example of what, what are the limits of our knowledge? Mm-hmm. You know, what's knowable? Because it, it's still very much a mystery, but now it's a known mystery, right? right. It's a known quantity of mystery. And, um, it, it furthers us to the edge of understanding just as the theory of relativity did and every other mental construct that helped us to define something like, say, quantum mechanics that now, we are beginning to use in a very concrete way, right? Like yeah. we've got the Hadron uh, Large Collider, and we're hoping to answer some really fundamental questions about physics through that. Here's the other thing about math. Look back through the history books and show me one war that was waged over disagreements about mathematics. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's like mathematics is the is like the one thing that we have where everybody's like like yeah yeah we can agree. I mean, you can get into gris- disagreements about s- certain things with with uh, in mathematical theory or mathematical right. philosophy, uh, and you know you'll have scholarly debates, and I'm sure in some cases some bitter rivalries among uh, math mathematicians. But for the most part, this is the thing that we we all understand and that we can agree on, and uh, while we may use it to uh, you know, to, to prove, uh, or, 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 or dictate science, which mm-hmm. can at times, as we, we know, can, can become a little, uh, problematic and, uh, and there'll be disagreements about things that are scientific. But right. the mathematics, 
you cannot you can well you can argue with mathematics, but but the the, the reasoning behind it, the mathematics itself is pure. It's an elegant system, right? right. And it's not saddled with. I don't know. As far as I can tell, it is not saddled with um, a lot of the problems that we have culturally, right? right? And in communicating because it is universal. So in every single culture, this number system is going to represent the same thing. Um, and maybe just a little bit differently, but, in, you know, certainly in where we are in history right now, it's widely used. Right. And so to your point, you know, it's how can you sit there and argue about the following equation when it is bearing out, at least in theory? Right. So we come to the inevitable, inevitable question about mathematics. We've talked about this, this thing that composes the tower by which we achieve everything we've achieved, you know, uh, our, our culture, our science, everything rests on it. Our ability to to command uh, as much of the physical world as mm-hmm. we seem to be able to command, it comes down to mathematics. So, is this something that we created? Did we create something that that uh, that 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 corresponds to the natural world so well that it allows us to control it, or is it something that we discovered? Did we discover, uh, you know, in Galileo's words, the the language of of God, the language of the universe? Is this is it a human creation or a human discovery? Now both. Both possibilities are equally awesome, and and humans wind up looking pretty good in both <laughs> equations because because either we're just we, you know we, either we are just so awesome that we created something that mm-hmm. that the universe corresponds to and and unlocks the the hidden mysteries of the universe, or we discover like we it's like under, uncovering the the bones of God in your backyard and uh, saying look what I found it enables me to understand and it was always everything. there whether or not you noticed right whether or not right. you observed it that's the other way of looking at it does math exist independently of humans like well, it, there's a planet out there that we've never we, we don't even know about we haven't heard we haven't discovered yeah. we haven't been there does math exist there okay in, well in some so way, shape, or form? that's where I see parallels with like the um, Copernican principle right which mm-hmm. basically says that humans are not uh, privileged observers of the universe. Like the universe is going to sit out there and exist regardless of whether or not our gaze is directed at the universe, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. And I think that, you know, math is inherently on the one, on that one side existing and it's for us to discover. On the other hand, the human brain is obviously, uh, has obviously developed to a point where it is hardwired to make these observations. Right. Right. Like we know that the neocortex is a new thing for at least the mammalian brain. It was lumped on there on top of the reptilian brain and it deals with these higher cognitive functions, um, like spatial reasoning, like, uh, logarithmics. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a chicken egg proposition to me. Yeah. And, um, uh... And as we'll continue to discuss here, you can you can sort of go with both sides. Now, my tower analogy definitely sort of lends itself more to the idea that we built something and it's a human creation. But but on the other hand, uh, as was pointed out to me by uh, actually by uh, a DJ by the name of uh, oh, right. DJ yeah. Irk, who actually is a uh, has a PhD in mathematics. I, I interviewed him recently on the mm-hmm. blog, so you can look that up. But he pointed out that uh, two hydrogen atoms floating beside two other hydrogen atoms. Uh, can still be called four hydrogen atoms, regardless of you know if you're on Earth or in another galaxy. That there there is a there is a there is a, a number system at work in the universe. Just an inherent intrinsic number right. system. Yeah. To uh, to actually throw in uh, you know the words of uh, to invoke the words of Plato, 
who, and this is actual Plato, not a DJ named Plato, um, argued, uh, he argued that math is a, is a discoverable, sy- discoverable system that underlines the structure of the universe. All right. So in other words, the universe is made of math. And the more we understand the, this vast interplay of numbers, the more we can understand nature itself. So math exists to the observer. Yeah. But then, you know, then the, of course, the other side again is that math is a man-made tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that it's an abstraction. It's free of time and space and merely corresponds with the universe. Uh, and that, and, and not, it doesn't always correspond, you know, completely. Like uh, consider elliptical planetary orbits. Uh, an elliptical trajectory provides astronomers with a close approximation of a planet's movement, but it's not a perfect one. Okay, see, what I love about that is, again, you get into this sort of gray area that, yes, you've got math as an elegant uh, thing unto itself. It's very straightforward. It's universal. And yet, there it doesn't provide all the answers. The mystery still remains. Right. The, the logistic theory, there are a number of theories about this, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm not going to mention all of them, but the, lo- the logistic theory uh, holds that math is an extension of human reason and logic. So, again, it's the, the idea that it's a system, it's an extension of our, our problem-solving abilities, and it's just the extension of that that allows us to handle even larger problems. It's just an extrapolation of our own right. cogitating minds. Okay. Yeah, and then uh, then there's the, uh, insti- the, the intuitional theory which defines math as a system of purely mental constructs that are internally consistent. So the reason math works so well is because it's internally consistent. The, the, the system itself works well, and that it, but it happens to correspond to nature. So you're intuiting pattern recognition. Right. The, the extrapolation of, of the uh, intuitional theory, and one that is less uh, accepted, is one called fictionalist theory, which says that math is essentially a fairy tale. Uh, success uh, that are just scientifically useful fictions, which is, uh, and again, this is an extreme version, but it helps illuminate this whole idea of math as a human creation. Mm-hmm. It's, kind of, it's kind of the idea that you have, uh, uh, I would go biblical for a second. So you have Jesus sitting uh, around on a log, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I don't know why he's on a log, but he, and he's telling parables, right? There are no like fancy seats. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the parables that he's telling in this situation, they're not true stories. Uh, there, you know, some, some story about someone's, you know, kind of like Aesop's fables, right? Mm-hmm. Aesop's fables are not real stories. They didn't actually happen, mm-hmm. but there's a truth to them right. that, uh, that resonates throughout human culture, you know? So it's kind of that idea of math. It's like math is an internally consistent story that is not true, but it's real. Okay. And, and did we talk about formalist theory yet? I no, did. I think I skipped over that. Because one. I want to talk about that one, and then I, and then I want to sort of see if we can locate, if it's possible, dark matter in one of these. Okay. I don't know, just as like a little quiz for us. Okay. Which, you know, um, just a fun game. But the formalist theory, and this is from your article, uh, argues that mathematics boils down to the ma- manipulation of man-made symbols. In other words, these theories propose that math is a kind of analogy. Um, that draws a line between concepts and real events. Okay. And I thought it was interesting because I began to think, like, what is the line between art and math then? Because you're communicating through a system of symbols some sort of experience, right? Mm-hmm. So I find, I find that really fascinating for, for that um, aspect of it. But I began to think about the fictionalist theory and then began to think about dark matter and... And I don't want to call it a fairy tale. I don't want anybody to, to misconstrue that. But I did think that if even though we've got the mathematical mo- model that says one plus one equals two, it is it may not necessarily be a true statement. Right. Because right. it's still 
an unknowable quantity. It's still a mystery to a certain degree. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's valid. The, um, when, when you take this even farther, though, you get into questions of, okay, regardless of, of whether math is something we created or discovered, uh, like how far does it go? What are the limits of mathematics? Um, there's a cosmologist, contemporary dude, by the name of Max Tegmark. Yes. He has a website and everything. He has so a So you know he's theory. legit. Yeah. yeah, string theory guy. So this is the idea of, of math is the ultimate, like, like yeah, m- math is the universe and Math is the understanding of the universe, and and hey, we can probably figure it out in time. Oh, well, I think that's fascinating because uh, on in the neuroscience field, they're trying to figure out a theory of the brain, which is very similar to the theory of everything, right? Right. It's very difficult to figure out how the brain works. The, the uh, one cohesive theory of the brain, but we know because we we've, we've researched this before that there's the Blue Brain Project in which they're trying to reengineer the human brain essentially map its 100 trillion synapses and to get some sort of understanding uh, of, of how it works much like the universe because right. if and what they're saying too what they're proposing is that the universe is the brain it is a construct of the brain wow so if, let's just imagine that these these you know side by side are going down the same rails and that within 10 years we'd be able to answer this question i mean what would we just Vaporize with, you know, because we've, we've reached some sort of final end of the meaning, you know? Yeah, it's like the semantic apocalypse, like we discussed before. The idea that if you explain the way the magic trick, then it's no longer a magic trick and that, and we are the magic trick. So, yeah. Um, then there, but then there's also, um, uh, something we call Gödel's first incompleteness theorem. And this is the work of, uh, Austrian mathematician Kurt Gödel. And, uh, he basically said, in this theorem, that any theory that's based on self-evident but unprovable proofs mm-hmm. um, is incomplete or inconsistent. So the the implication here is that, um, and and this is something that uh, this is something that also this um, is what keeps us from vaporizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so basically, the idea here is that mathematics is inexhaustible. All right, mm-hmm. no matter how many problems we solve, we're inevitably going to encounter more unsolvable problems uh, within the existing rules. Um, so this would seem to discount the idea of, of a of, of a theory of everything because math is is the system that whether we created it or or discovered it it goes on forever. It's like the um, how many to, to what decimal point can we carry out pi? Uh, you know, you can carry it out to the billions, you can carry it out to the trillions, mm-hmm. but can you carry it out to the end? No, because it's infinite. Because there is no end. Well, but that's what's so interesting too. You know, if if the Blue Brain Project does have some sort of breakthrough about our understanding of the human brain. And mm-hmm. if string theory begins to prove itself out in a more concrete way, then does it just spiral other questions that we need to answer right. into the, you know, into the, the ether? Um, or, you know, which is probably the case, right? I don't think it just closes down our understanding and we finally say, ah, oh, we are complete. We know it all. Yeah, it's like we get new, uh, you know, it's just like, it's like life. You, you solve one problem, there's going to be another one. You, uh, you know, if you're, uh, you, you see that one item in the store, or that one game, that one book you, you know, you really need and you finally get it, then there's just going to be another one you, you, uh, end up, uh, setting your heart on, so. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I'm, it's not going to actually make me, uh, become a Scrabble champ. I don't think. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, we, I, maybe we could take some theories of the brain and, and some string theory and. Apply to Scrabble? The, yeah. We should do something on Scrabble sometimes. I know, it's pretty, yeah. Word freak. 
Well, hey, there you go. So that's math. Um, you know, <laughs> from a very broad <laughs> level. It's like yeah. like math is a city, and we're flying over it at a fairly high altitude and trying to make out as much as we can of it through the clouds. That's right. Yeah. We're, we're just tourists of math. Cool. Well, I have a couple of uh, listener mail here for us. Right, Non-math related, because it would be impossible for someone to respond to the podcast that we just recorded. Uh, I don't know. Multiverses. Maybe. String theory. Um, this first one comes from Parallel a listener universes. by the name of Peyton. And Peyton says, hey, Robert and Julie, this is Peyton from Hendersville, North Carolina. I live just up the road a piece from you guys in Atlanta. Actually, it's more. It's about three hours away. I just wanted to say that I enjoyed the Nuclear Fallout podcast, and it actually reminded me of a very funny episode of The Office from a few years ago. It was the one where Pam's old boyfriend, Roy, comes into the office and attacks Jim. Fortunately, Dwight quickly pepper sprays him, and everyone in the office is immediately bent over, coughing, and rubbing their eyes. A similar thing would happen in the case of a nuclear strike. It's true that only one concentrated area would receive the full destruction of the bomb, but its effects would be felt all over the world. Just thought I'd share the analogy with you guys. Keep up the great podcasting. So, yeah, this is a, the, the example he's uh, he's bringing up here is a small application of um, of fluid dynamics. The way um, these particles of uh, pepper spray, uh, the, the particles of, of pepper, or whatever, um, would uh, would distribute through a closed environment uh, yeah. in moving air and moving fluid, and then nuclear fallout, as we discussed in the, the previous podcast, uh, a lot of that depends on you know how is how is air, how is this fluid moving on you know around the globe in a local area, in an urban environment, etc. I just like the fact that in this analogy, Dwight is kind of like the enriched uranium. <laughs> I think that's appropriate. Yeah. Uh, we received another one here. This is from Eric. And Eric writes in about the uh, the dog podcast, Does My Dog Really Love Me?, that we did. And uh, uh, well, actually, he's responding to an email response. He's actually responding to a response. But anyway, uh-huh. he says... Uh, he says, hey, you had an email from a dog owner who felt that maybe his dog had Stockholm Syndrome. Having adopted more than one rescue dog, I've noticed many dogs who have been abused are very skittish at first. But when they realize they will no longer be a hit, they show quite a lot more love. My current dog, an Aussie named Ghost, was very skittish at first. If you reached down to give him a rub, he'd always he'd always flinch. Uh, he was also always very skittish around new people. We started having all house guests give him a treat when they arrived. Last week, while walking him off leash, we came upon another couple walking their dogs. Ghost walked right up to them for a rub. Personally, I think this, this person's dog was simply afraid of him at first, but soon realized his new owner was okay. Uh, so anyway, there's a, an account of dogs... I don't know if it's love, but, uh, you know, uh, it, certainly it shows that dogs uh, are able to uh, get over trauma a lot easier than humans. Yeah. yeah. Do you think ghost has something to do with, with maybe being a little skittish? I, I mean, the know. name ghost. He offered to send us a picture, but did not. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, questioning. The existence of the dog. <laughs> yeah. Or even the, the name choice. I'm just wondering. You huh. never know what dogs really understand. I think I'd be a little skittish if I was named ghost. I, I think that's a lot to put it on the naming of the dog. I know, but still, I have heard, um, I have heard the argument that the name you give a dog does have a huge play a role in how that dog is. Like it's just about like how, like um, I, I forget which dog expert, expert this was, but they pointed out that if you have a big scary pit bull and you name it Cujo, yeah, then you're already you know ascribing a certain energy to that animal, you know, and uh, and and you're. 
like on, on just a, a subconscious level, you're already making the dog the scary thing that you're going to be submissive to, and is and is you know maybe not your friend. Oh, that's interesting. So psychologically, on the part of the the person who's perceiving the dog. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's kind of I don't know if it if it actually crosses over to like human names as well because you've heard like if you if you name a child like Egbert or something I don't it's not really a name like Hubert or Hubert that's kind of, you're kind of setting them up to be uh, you know a, a bookish nerd I guess and if you're kind of call them Brutus or something then they they kind of then they're kind of destined to be on the football team right. Because Unless they're taking some sort of like classical, like antiquities interpretation yeah. <laughs> from that, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's certainly not the only factor, but you know, you wonder to what extent you're you're uh, you're, you're forecasting their their future. We're gonna have to check in with Apple in a couple of years, see how that's working for her. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that's Gwyneth Paltrow's kid, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We shall see. That's all I got. All right. Well, hey, if you guys have anything to share with us, or you want to check out uh, what we're into. You can uh, find us online. We are Blow the Mind on both Twitter and Facebook. And do check out HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, you can find that math article we talked about, um, How Math Works. You can find uh, the Fibonacci, Fibonacci Numbers article. And uh, there's also some really cool stuff about fractals, right? Yeah, we have an incredible fractal image gallery, um, which is, I mean, if you would like to see math as interpreted in, in, in these um incredible figures, then you should check that out. It's on our homepage and it's definitely worth a look. Um, it's not something that we were able to get to today, but Mandelbrot's set, uh, one of the fractals, is just amazing. Yeah, and we and if you don't know what fractals are, guess what? They have an article about uh, how fractals work as well, and it's excellent. And yeah, if you want to uh, drop us a line, please do so at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.